Lately, what I've been preaching when I approach a passage like this, and I've preached on this passage a number of times over the last 40 years, and it's interesting is that as I've gone back and looked at my notes, that every time I preach on this, I think I really got it this time. And so I will tell you that even though I preached on this very passage back here about 10 years ago at Nauset, um, if you find that sermon, you can go ahead and listen to it, but it's nothing like the sermon I'm going to preach today. But I think maybe 10 years, if God enables me to continue preaching, I'll say I didn't understand it back in 2018. God's Holy Spirit needs to enlighten us when we look at his word. But one of the things that I've been doing lately as I preach is I do a, an overview of the passage and I liken it to flying an airplane at relatively low altitude. I call it the 5,000 foot perspective so that we can get the context of what's being taught here by our Lord Jesus. So with a 5,000 foot perspective, I have nine observations that I want to make <clears throat> about this passage in the context of what we have in chapter 16. I believe that this story is a parable. And uh, there are some that would disagree, but most commentators believe that this story is a parable. Parables are wonderful. They are stories that have an objective that we need to understand. But you cannot form theology from parables. And I believe that this is a parable because there are elements in this parable about judgment and hell and heaven and that we disagree with more theological passages. So I don't think that's the objective of the parable, but I think our key objective this morning is to figure out what it is, what's the big idea in this passage. Number two, this actual story was an adaptation of Jewish oral and written tradition. Uh, some of the phrases are actually written down in the Talmud using phrases such as he died and was carried away by the angels to the bosom of Abraham or into Abraham's bosom. Uh, Jesus was directing uh, this to the heart of the Pharisees using their very own words from their very own historical passages. So this is a parable, number one. Number two is written to the heart of the Pharisees. <clears throat> number three, as with all parables, as I said, uh, in, hinted just a minute ago, we have to look for the main object of the parable. There's always a main object and once we understand the main object of the parable, we can then derive the secondary teachings that may or may not be in the particular parable of interest. So what's the big idea is the question we have to ask ourselves when we come to a parable like this. What's the main object lesson? And number four, we all love this story. <clears throat> and it's a very memorable story, like all of Jesus' parables. They're wonderfully easy to remember. Everybody knows about the rich man and Lazarus. And it appeals, I believe, the reason we love it is it appeals to our sense of justice. We see that the bad guy gets what he deserves in the end, and the good guy gets what he deserves. Uh, the only problem was is that that's not in this parable. But that's, that's an easy takeaway, would be a misunderstanding What the poor man, Lazarus, receives is not because he deserves it. Fifthly, as we've said so many times, <clears throat> as we study our Bibles, context is king. Context, context, context. For those of us that like to pluck a verse out of its context and apply it to whatever situation appeals to us at the moment, we're doing disservice to the scriptures. Context is king, and any first rule of Bible study is that we must understand the text within the context of where the writer put it. Uh, please notice that the context that we're dealing with in our passage here, starting with the verse 9, actually goes back to the beginning of the chapter, chapter 16. 
And in fact, if you look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15 and 16 serve as like bookends. But if you look at chapter 16, in particular, look at verse 1, or for, I'm sorry, verse 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. And what he's concluding in verse 10 is the story of the dishonest stewards or managers who were not faithful to use what they were given for the glory of God. He uses their misuse of things that have been provided for as an illustration of their rejection of the kingdom of God and God's word. And what Jesus does in verse 11 of chapter 16, if then they have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And this whole notion of true riches is where Jesus is coming down, which then leads into the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. True riches, meaning kingdom blessings, are to be valued so much more highly than monetary riches. <clears throat> it's not about monetary riches or physical wealth. Kingdom blessings are far deeper than that. Number six, Jesus goes on to say in verse 15 that they were those who justified themselves before men, but God knows your hearts, their motives, their inner desires, if you will. And then comes this great statement in verse 15b, <clears throat> for what is exalted among men is an abomination to God. Obviously, what's important to man is not important to God. The kingdom of God is manifest by the inner man, the heart. Where true riches are found is in our relationship with kingdom blessings in the heart. But I want to say that the key that unlocks our passage, which can often be just missed, is found in verse 16. If you would look at your Bibles and look at verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Verse 16 is a mouthful. Verse 16, as I said, is the key that unlocks this entire context of this portion of Scripture that we're studying this morning. The rule, the standard that everyone lived by up until John was the Mosaic Law was the law and the prophets were the rule, the standard. Then something happened. Then there was a pivot in history. John the Baptist, the historically significant time in the God's special revelation, John the Baptist is the pivot point where we hinge from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, to the New Covenant to the new covenant under Christ. And that's when, <clears throat> that's when the standard changed. That's when everything is different. So we understand that verse 16 is the king, is the key to unlocking. The good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. One dot to the law. Now, this is, this is a, a mouthful. Let me just say that. This is a mouthful. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law. But he just said that the, there's, there's this a pivot point in history. John the Baptist introduced the new covenant. Was John an old covenant prophet? Or was John a new covenant prophet? And the answer is clearly yes. The answer is clearly yes. 
This is a point in history, like an elbow, where we hinge from old into the new. And John is announcing the incarnate Christ, God, the second person of the Trinity, is among us. And he's pointing the way. And the way of the kingdom of God is being preached. God will hold them accountable, them being the Pharisees. God will hold them accountable for rejecting the good news. They will be held to their own standard of choice, which was the law. Except, it wasn't God's version, it was their version of the law. And I'll explain that in just a minute. They had adulterated the word of God. They had changed it for their own liking. And if you, if you change the law with the intention of forcing your way into the kingdom, it will not happen. You think that you're headed to the kingdom, but it will not happen. There are millions of people today who think they're headed to the kingdom. They think that they're doing things which will please God and that they will end up in heaven. They are incorrect. They're forcing their way into glory. It will not happen. And there's a principle here that I want you, if you're taking notes, just think about and meditate on later. And the principle is this. By the measure with which we measure, so shall we be measured ourselves. Let me repeat that. By the measure with which we measure, so shall we be measured. If you, in fact, intend on forcing your way into the kingdom by any other method or mechanism than the good news, you are going to be fearfully and awfully surprised. There's no other way into the kingdom of heaven. The eighth observation from 5,000 foot is what, we, what do we mean when we talk about the good news? <clears throat> the King James uses the expression, the kingdom of God is preached. What is the good news? Well, I find there are many passages which articulate the good news, right? I don't know if somebody asks you, if you run into someone on the street, you're a believer, and they say, well, what do you mean by the good news? Do you have a text in mind that you could just quote to them? You should, you should. I love Romans chapter 3, and if you get a chance or the opportunity to turn there, it's page 1197 in the Pew Bible. But Romans chapter 3, Paul does a wonderful job of articulating what this good news thing is all about. And look at verse 21 of chapter 3, Romans. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness. This was to show God's righteousness. That's the good news, ladies and gentlemen. That is the good news that John came to preach. That is the good news that Jesus introduced in his teaching while he was on the earth. <clears throat> that is the good news. So it seems to me that the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees in particular, and the scribes, the teachers, should have been on the lookout for the true Messiah. They should have been uh, looking based upon what they had read and prophecies like Isaiah, Jeremiah, about what the new covenant was going to look like. But you see, they weren't. Because they were perfectly happy with the system that they enjoyed. They had modified the laws of significantly 
uh, such that uh, they were perfectly happy and doing very well. Thank you very much. But the meek one who comes and best illustrates the kingdom with his many demonstrations of divinity, the blind were given sight, the deaf were given ears, the sick were healed, the demons were cast out. Jesus manifested all what was necessary to demonstrate his divinity, and yet the Pharisees closed him out. Now, before we get into the actual parable itself, let me just say something about verse 18. Because verse 18, when I first was studying this passage, my Bible has a special heading, and it says, uh, Divorce and Remarriage. And I often wondered as I was studying the context here, the, the greater passage, what in the world are, uh, is Jesus going on to a conversation about divorce and marriage? It just didn't seem to fit. He seemed to slip it in there. But please consider a couple of things that Jesus introduced himself as the bridegroom for his people. He was the bridegroom. And of course, throughout the Old Testament, whenever we see the nation of Israel committing sins and, and falling away from the living and true God, they were referred to as a whore, as a prostitute, as someone who would leave their first love and go for the attentions of false gods. And so Jesus is the bridegroom and the church, the nation, uh, the people of God, if you will, committed spiritual adultery, and now they are rejecting the bridegroom. Secondly, as I said earlier, they had their own version of the law. You see, they made up stuff over centuries, and they had corrupted the law. And in particular, this bringing Jesus, showing this with this illustration about marriage and divorce is, is perfect is an illustration of how they had adulterated the law. Do you realize that according to Pharisaical teaching, you could divorce your wife for any reason at all? An old friend of mine who was an old preacher that I knew years ago used to say that if, if your wife burnt your toast at breakfast, that was cause for divorce. And so you see this, this bringing this in at this point was classic to illustrate how the Pharisees had twisted the law of God and made their own laws and they were forcing their way into the kingdom of heaven. They had their own version of the law. Now my thesis for this sermon this morning is that I think we can be guilty of the same thing. Oh, say it ain't so, brother. Yes, we can be guilty of the same thing. We can make up our own rules. And we do it every day. And if someone doesn't comply to my rules or my perspective, then they can't go to heaven. We do it every day. On my rules, consider the law of Al. Now, let's just say Al's going to make a set of rules, and if you don't comply to my rules, tough. You're out. The only problem with churches is, is that they're full of sinners. You know, when there's only one person at the church, you only have to deal with a, a modicum of sin. But when a second person comes, the sin doubles. And then when 20 people or 30 people or 50 people are here, it just goes out of control. We make our own rules. What's acceptable? What's not acceptable? How we must live? Theoretically, you see, here's what we think. Theoretically, there are two ways to go to heaven. Oh, that sounds like blasphemy. Well, it kind of is. But theoretically, there are two ways to go to heaven. You can keep God's law, and I mean keep it perfectly every bit. You know, in Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus is teaching the disciples that they are to be what? Perfect. 
So theoretically, there are two ways to go to heaven. You can keep the law of God, not your version of it, and you must keep it perfectly. Or you can be adopted into God's family, being covered in Christ's righteousness. That is the good news. That is the good news. You have a choice. You can try to be perfect, or you can be adopted and covered in the righteousness of Christ, which is called the good news. And again, as I said, it's not our version of the law, but it's God's version of the law. Now, to the parable itself, starting in 19. And I think as we dive now into this parable, we need to see that uh, what this portion is teaching us by starting with what it is not teaching us. What is this portion not teaching us? Well, first of all, it's not teaching us that poverty in and of itself is righteousness. Uh, we know some who uh, believe that poverty sets them apart as righteous, and that's not the teaching of this passage. Secondly, we must know that Riches in and of themselves is not damnable. It's not damnable. We have illustrations upon illustrations of people in the scripture who were wealthy. And especially in the Old Testament, it was a sign of God's blessing. But I believe that the big idea in this parable is also not teaching us that The objective is for us to learn how to help the poor. Now, I believe that there is a principle in scriptures, throughout the scripture. I mean, look at the book of James. There's a principle that says we need to help the poor. We need to set apart the widows and the orphans and make sure that we're providing for their needs. But that's not the primary teaching of this passage of scripture that we are to help the poor. So we know a couple of things. We know what it's not, but what it is. What is it teaching us? Well, Jesus gives us these two characters which couldn't be more different. You got the rich guy, and you got the poor guy, and they've given him a name, Lazarus, which means what? Without help. So there's our two characters, and they couldn't be more different. And what the scripture, I believe, is teaching us is that what satisfies us today, and might I say what makes us happy, is an indication of where we're going to spend eternity. I know that's a bold statement, but contemplate it for a minute. I think what this passage is telling us is what really makes us happy would tell us, would inform us, as to where we're going to spend eternity. The big question, the big question in this parable is what was the sin that sent the rich man to Hades? What was the sin that sent this rich man to Hades? Maybe it was lack of compassion. Maybe it was self-indulgence. But the big idea of this passage or this parable, the big idea is wrapped up in the answer to the big question. And I believe that the big idea is that living content without Christ is what sent the rich man to Hades. Living content without Christ, rejecting the cornerstone is what's going to send the Pharisees, the people who should have known better, to Hades, along with this story of this rich man. Life on earth is a vapor. Life, if, if you're in your 70s or 80s, you recognize how fast your life has traveled by. And the interesting thing about getting older is that time becomes nonlinear. Sorry for the technical expression, but it means that time goes faster the older we get. Time goes exceptionally fast. It's a vapor. 
And no soul, no soul created in the image of God should be satisfied with things of this life. See verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner received bad things. Things, whatever they might be, good things or bad things, will not satisfy, nor will they justify, nor will they prepare us to see Jesus in eternity. Now listen, you may say, well, I I don't have to worry about, I don't have a lot of good things in this life, so therefore I just have bad things. Well, let me just tell you this, bad things won't prepare you for eternity either. A lot of people think if they suffer in this life, if they go through trials and difficulties in this life, That's a sign that they're going to be blessed forever in eternity. But let me tell you, good things or bad things will not prepare your soul for eternity with Christ. But the Pharisees were perfectly happy. And uh, the Living Bible uses this expression that said uh, uh, for this verse, Abraham's reply to the rich man, you had everything you wanted, everything you desired, you received. But older versions of the scripture use this expression of your portion. You had your portion in this life. This is what you sought and received in this life. For some of us, it's position or honor or respect or love. Or whatever. These are the things that we've sought. These are the things that have been our desired portion. And as I said, the Pharisees were perfectly happy with their system of religion. They were thrilled with their own system. The problem is is that much of that religion was invented by them and not by God. They were satisfied without Christ. They passed over what Jesus referred to earlier in verse 11 for true riches for trinkets. They passed over true riches, kingdom blessings for trinkets. Believers, we have to be on guard. Our souls are precious. We need to be on guard ourselves and that we not be tempted by the wicked. Don't try to satisfy yourselves with anything here on earth. The reason I had Psalm 73 read is because the psalmist is being very honest and saying, you know, when he looked around and looked at the world and say they all seem to be so happy, they all seem to be living life without trouble. And I was tempted, he said, until I came into the sanctuary. And then I recognized where they're headed. And I was no longer jealous over them. And he says in Psalm 73, verse 25, There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That's the conclusion that the psalmist came to after almost stumbling when he recognized those around him seemed to be having a great time. So with all of this background, the story sort of interprets itself. Jesus uses the contrast of the two characters. As the master teacher that he was, he used this memorable story. Everybody knows about the rich man and Lazarus. But I believe that the rich man in our passage is obviously the Jews. He was directing this story to the heart of the Pharisees and the teachers that were around him and criticizing. They had everything. They were the people of God. They had special revelation from God. They had the theophanies or the presence of God. 
They had the prophets and the prophecy from God. They had the promises from God. They had provisions from God. They had all of these things that they've enjoyed over the centuries. They were the rich men. They had everything. They fared sumptuously. If you look at the, the passage when it talks about the fact describing the rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen in verse 19. Well, I went back as I started thinking about this to Exodus chapter 28 and the description of the apparel to be worn by the Levitical priest. Guess what? Fine linen and purple. It's obvious Jesus is directing this story of the rich man to point to the Jews. They had everything that they need. They feasted sumptuously. And again, the Jews in particular, you know, at the expense of all of the other nations, the Jews were given the word of God. And yet they adulterated it and they took it for granted. The Jews in particular were uh, the rich man in our parable. The poor man, Gentiles and sinners, those who were outside of the camp, if you will, those who didn't deserve the blessings of God. That's the poor man here. That's the poor man that we have in our passage. This whole idea of the poor man being, verse 20, laid at the gate. Lazarus means without help. He had to be carried to his position of begging for crumbs to fall from the rich man's table. That was the Jews. You remember that brings back the example of the woman who came and said to Jesus, can I at least have some crumbs off of the table, Lord? That's a whole other sermon because he says some things which you go, whoa, he's been a little cruel and harsh. But <clears throat> that's the poor man, the Gentiles and the sinners. They had nothing but need spiritually. You think about the poor. The poor in spirit, Jesus says, and the Sermon in the Mount had nothing but need spiritually. A couple of chapters later, you read about the two men that went to the temple to pray. One was a tax collector, wicked sinner. The other was a Pharisee. The rich, the Pharisee, he stands up front and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And then you got this poor man who's beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So the poor man or the Gentiles and the sinners covered with sores. The picture is grotesque. The picture is grotesque. And then we see that the dogs are the only, the only beings that are ministering to this poor man were the dogs that came to lick his sores. And you know, dogs in this time in history were not you know, lovely pets like we have today. They weren't busters and they weren't uh, uh, phytos and whatever. They were dirty. Uh, they were flea-bitten. They were laden with disease and ticks and all kinds of nasty things. But they were the only ones that came to minister to this poor man who was covered with sores, despicable in the sight of men. And folks... I don't want to be the first one to tell you this, but that's us. We are poor spiritually. We got nothing going for us. We are in great need. We're not the rich man in the parable. We are outside of the camp until Jesus changed the rules and brought us in with the good news that was preached so this poor man was hungry, longing to be fed from crumbs from the rich man's table. Oh, that we might be that kind of hungry. Again, back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's the Lazarus in our parable. Now, verse 22 comes along, and I, I, I'm, I'm going to hurry here. Verse 22 comes along, and there's a reversal, a great reversal of fortunes. 
They both die. And, 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 and what's fascinating here is you see in this life, the poor man had nothing but God. The rich man had everything but God. Did you get that? The poor man had nothing but God, and the rich man has everything but God. But in heaven, the poor man is being comforted and loved. The rich man is in agony, no comfort, no love, but separation. There's a chasm fixed between him and God. And verse 24, for the first time in the existence of the rich man. And you see, if the Jews got this, if the Jews got this, what they were convinced more than anything was that they were going to be in heaven because they were keeping the law every jot and tittle. They were tithing with mint incoming and they were doing everything right so that they could be in eternity. And now Jesus is telling them that they're going to open their eyes in Hades. Talk about someone who wasn't afraid of confrontation, huh? Open his eyes in Hades. And for the first time, the rich man is thirsty. For the very first time in existence, the rich man is thirsty. And he says, have mercy on me, send Lazarus to dip his finger into water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish. So <clears throat> I would say this, that this was the first earnest prayer of the rich man's life. The first time that he was praying out of a sense of need and not out of a sense of self-righteousness. Have mercy. He indicates that he's thirsty for the first time. Thirsty, of course, is an indication of a lack of spiritual blessing. This is a spirit-induced awareness of the soul's new need. Uh, <clears throat> water in the scriptures is typically associated with the Holy Spirit. So for the first time in his existence, the rich man opens his eyes and he's in great need and cries out to God. But the rich man had chosen his portion. This idea of portion, again, comes from the scriptures. And we started out the morning by reading Psalm 17. But we saw it in verse uh, 25 of Psalm 73. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 17, the, the meditation passage David claims that the wicked are those men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance, their abundance to their infants. Now, does that sound harsh? It sounds harsh. It is harsh. But if you make anything your portion on this life, other than Jesus, even children, can be reason for you to wake up in Hades. Even good things or bad things, they're things, even good things, if we hold them in high esteem, higher than Christ, will separate us from God forever and ever. And verse 27 through 31 we can't leave our passage without some reference to, to that magnificent portion of this parable. But the argument of the non-believer is always the same. Always the same. If God wanted to teach me or show me something, let him perform a miracle for me. Have you ever done that? <clears throat> Have you ever said, give me a sign, Lord, and then I'll believe in you? You've never done that? Boy, I, I confess I had. I can tell you that in college, I had decided by the age, the wise old age of 13, that 
none of this Christianity stuff made any sense. And I began to form arguments against Christians. And I can tell you in college, I was the, I was the dumb one making arguments against those that profess to be Christians. And I would say dumb things like, if God is real, let him move the books from that end of the bookcase to that end of the bookcase. Let him show me that he's real, then I'll believe in him. What foolishness. What arrogance. What pride. There are many that would say, God, give me a sign. I prayed once, and I'm, 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 this sounds crazy. Nobody could have ever done this. But I prayed once. I was really struggling my first couple of years of college to get any grades. And my grades would be mailed home to my parents. And I prayed a couple of times that God would change the, the grade level on my coursework as it appeared in the mailbox at my parents' home. God, if you're real, make those D's and F's B's and C's. I didn't. I, did, I wasn't audacious enough to ask for an A. But I prayed that way. Stupid. Just ridiculous. But I know people who have said, God, if you're real, heal my daughter of her cancer. Or bring a spouse to me. Then I'll believe. Then I'll believe. The Jews had all of the privileges of being a people of God, receiving the word, enjoying his presence, yet they rejected the cornerstone. You see, the whole purpose in history, if you look at the history of redemption, from the beginning of the Bible until the end of the Bible, was that God was going to redeem his people. He was going to send the Redeemer and he did ultimately in Jesus Christ. And there are the Jews and they just, no thanks. We're all set. Thank you very much. We love our religion just the way it is. And our temptation is to agree that those people were terrible. Those hard-hearted Pharisees were just awful people. But I would say this, that 2,000 years later, Many evangelicals are exactly the same as the Pharisees were in the days of Christ. Have we made substitutes for Jesus? Are we living out the motions without our hearts being engaged? Have we taken sumptuous fare every week from the word which is faithfully preached Have we taken the richness? You know, I don't know if you ever watch uh, TV. Uh, There are some big pastors that are on TV shows and things. Maybe if you're sick or you're locked in, you watch some of these things and you look at the little preacherettes doing sermonettes for Christianettes. And... You just say, that's sad. Well, many times that's just fine for folks. They're happy with what, they, what they're getting. They have sumptuous fear, and yet they are not hungering for God or for his word. We must see that to be satisfied with anything in this life is the worst sin in God's eyes. Even good things, like children. If we're satisfied with children, our portion is in this life. Isn't that a horrible thing to say? It's not me saying it, folks. It's the scriptures that are saying it. To live without a vital relationship of the king of kings, our elder brother, the captain of our faith, is damnable. Do you have a vital relationship with the king of kings? I would say this cautiously out of love, but I don't know if and when we'll be back here to preach again. And I want to say it because we love you. Make sure that your relationship with Christ is the strongest relationship that you enjoy. So I have a couple of takeaways and then I'll be done. <clears throat> 
Again, I believe the key verse to understanding this passage is verse 16. Let me read it one more time. Verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Then, since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. That, I believe, is the key to understanding that John the Baptist was the pivot point between the old covenant and the new. We're not living in the old covenant any longer. We have the good news that is preached to us. The kingdom has suffered violence since that time. And there's another parallel passage in Matthew chapter 12 you can look at. But um, the kingdom has suffered violence with men trying to force their way into it. And I use the men generically. Trying to force their way into it by their own set of rules. And believe me, if you know some people that are trapped in various cults, They are convinced that they're going to heaven. They are sincerely believing it, but they're wrong. And if we don't, somehow, if God doesn't, in his mercy, wake them up and use whatever means possible, hopefully us, to shake them and say, I know you're sincere, but you're sincerely wrong. Secondly, the greatest of all sins in light of the free gospel offer is to live contented lives without Christ. Hopefully that's obvious by this point. Third, the end is the end. (laughs) Boy, that's profound. The end is the end. Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. it's going to happen. I was with a dear brother and sister, uh, the brothers in his late 80s, and he said, if the Lord takes me, uh, something, something, something. (laughs) And I said, brother, what do you mean if the Lord takes you? The Lord's taken you. Thankfully, he's a dear Christian, and I know where he's going. But he still can't seem to deal with the reality of the fact that he's going to die. The end is the end. It is appointed once for man to die. Then comes the judgment. There's a great chasm fixed between the damned and the redeemed. The rich man in hell argues with Abraham to send a special messenger to his family. Abraham's response to the rich man is that they have no excuse. He said to the rich man in hell, you have the old covenant scriptures to believe in, the promises. Even if a man were raised from the dead, they would not believe. They will be judged upon what they know. Well, guess what? There was a man named Lazarus who was raised from the dead. And what did they do? They put a target on his back and tried to kill him. There was another man, even greater man, who was raised from the dead, was seen by hundreds of people. And what did they do? They tried to deny the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. A rich man was damned because he didn't respond to the old covenant law and the prophets and what they contained. How much more are we responsible given all of the enjoyments of the feast of God's word that we are offered every week? Every week. There is no undoing of this separation. Judgment is for eternity where you will be separated from Jesus whom you rejected while on earth for a very short period of time. Just a vapor, this life. Fourthly and finally, The great news this morning that I am thrilled to be able to say is that God has given you the gift of time because you're still breathing. You're still this side. What is it you say all the time? You say something about I'm this side of the grass or I'm below the grass or I'm above the grass. God has given you time, John. I'm calling you out there because you have a a way of saying this. But great news this morning is that you have time. 
God has given you time to hear a message like this. Nothing new. You didn't learn anything you didn't already know. But God's reminding us that the most important relationship that we will ever have in this life is our primary relationship with Jesus the Christ. Nothing else matters compared to that relationship. God has given us time. And whether you're listening here in front of me or you're listening on the internet, which I'm assuming some, of, some people may do, God has given you time. And I wonder how many times has the Holy Spirit, when you've been sitting in the hearing of his word and you've been sitting for thousands of times over, uh, over 40 or 50 or whatever number of years, how many times has the Holy Spirit pricked your heart and you said, you know, I need to deal with that. I need to, I need to take that truth. I need to get home, get on my knees, ask God to forgive me and fill me with his spirit. And yet you, on your way home, you get distracted or whatever and you just don't follow through with it. And by Monday afternoon, your heart is engaged in so many other things that you just forget. <clears throat> God has given us time. Brothers and sisters, God has given us time. God has given us time. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12 says, Take care, brothers. <clears throat> As I've said in this pulpit and other pulpits, Hebrews is filled, it's called the book of warning, by the way, the epistle of warning. Hebrews is full of warnings to Christians who are tempted to let other things take a higher importance in their lives or to flee from the only source of blessing that they would receive blessing. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 through 15, take care, brothers, lest any of you have an evil and unbelieving heart. It can happen in the midst of the years. Trials, difficulties, struggles, physical pain, loneliness, disease, whatever, can separate us from the love of Christ if we're not careful. Take care, brethren. Take care. Do not tra treat the blessings of his word casually. This is our lifeblood.